we're going to look in this second address um, at uh, the exhortation that was given to Timothy, but also I believe it's an exhortation for us. In, in our first address, Timothy was charged with the oversight of the ecclesia at Ephesus. He got that uh, task, hadn't he, that charge of contending with the empty talkers of the circumcision, the doctors of the law who were teaching Jewish fables. And he was charged with building up the house of God as the pillar and the ground of the truth, the, the dwelling place of the family of God, where godliness, God's character is to be developed, where God's truth is nourished and where it's maintained upon earth. And he was to set forth Paul's ways, which be in Christ. But now here in the second epistle, we've got a, a more personal letter. A letter to encourage Timothy. In the first epistle, Timothy was to set in order, but now here in the second epistle, we've got an urgent appeal to Timothy to encourage and to support him that he might overcome the challenges that were developing in the ecclesial world. And Paul was concerned and Paul was anxious. He wanted to see Timothy face to face. He wanted to see Timothy face to face. And so we read in the second of Timothy four and verse nine, do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. And the word diligence there is the, the, the a word that means to use speed. And again, in chapter four and verse 21, do thy diligence to come before winter. And no doubt Paul wanted to see Timothy because of that close bond of friendship that they shared. Oh, I'm not. <clears throat> Can you all see me and hear me all right? Everything is working fine, Brother Alan. Yeah, okay. it's all good. Just I'm having information coming in from another uh, source that um, things are frozen. So apologies. No, we'll, good, yeah. we'll, we'll carry on. I'll leave it to you, uh, Ben, that if there's a problem, you'll shout at me, OK? Uh, I'll let you know. Don't worry. <laughs> Well, no doubt Timothy wanted to see, uh, Paul wanted to see Timothy because of that close bond of friendship that they shared. But he, he wanted to see him face to face. He wanted to enthuse Timothy with final words of exhortation before Paul died, that he might withstand, he may continue uh, the challenges of the truth. And the, the, so that the truth would grow and that the truth would prosper. And so what we're going to be looking at is Timothy's final words. But as we've pointed out, they've been left on record for our learning and for our admonition. Timothy needed to continue in the things that he'd learnt. He needed reproof, correction. He needed instruction in righteousness. And so do we, brethren and sisters. Firstly, then, Paul admonishes him and he reminds him to stir up the gift of God. So we read in Verse, uh, second of Timothy, chapter one and verse six. Wherefore, I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. Uh, and the word remembrance means to remind, but also it means to admonish. Timothy needed to be put in remembrance. He needed to be reminded. He needed to be admonished. 
that he stir up the gift of God. And that word, words stir up the gift means to rekindle. In the Greek, it's made up of three words, as you see on the screen, to fire up, to bring back and bring to life. The uh, English Standard Version says to fan into flame the gift of God. And we wonder, was Timothy holding back because of his youth, because of his natural timidity? Well, whatever the reason, Paul needed to remind him and needed to admonish him. And so we find in the uh, uh, second of Timothy, chapter one and verse seven, for God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but be thou partakers of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. And the word ashamed is that very same word that's used by Jesus when he says in Luke chapter 9 and verse 26, for whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the son of man be ashamed. And so we cannot be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul must have been concerned for Timothy. Why else would he go on to say, but be thou a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God? And Paul uses the word ashamed to gently admonish Timothy. Firstly, he directs Timothy to consider his own example. There in chapter 1 and verse 12, for the which cause I also suffer these things, Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. There was Paul suffering in his cold, dark prison cell. And he was not ashamed because he believed and he was persuaded that in that day of Christ's return, he would be rewarded for the life which he had committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then secondly, Paul puts before Timothy another example. That's the example of Onesimus, Onesiphorus. For he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. Paul had been often refreshed by him. He was not ashamed of Paul's chain. In fact, in verse 17, we read, but when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. And so what have we got? Timothy, be not ashamed. Paul, I'm not ashamed. Onesiphorus wasn't ashamed, but sought him out diligently. Timothy needed encouragement. Paul wanted to see him face to face. And so now we've got one of the most powerful exhortations you'll find anywhere in scripture. And it's directed to Timothy, but of course it's profitable for our instruction. I'd like you to go to 2nd of Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Don't be ashamed, Timothy, be strong. There was 
much work to be done. The charge of the truth never ends. It's got to be continually passed down to faithful men. And so we read in verse two of chapter two. And the things which thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Now Paul directs Timothy to consider three occupations that require dedication, discipline and patience. Three qualities that are essential in order that we should prepare for the kingdom. And he directs our minds to the characteristics of the soldier, the athlete and the husbandman or the farmer. The soldier who dedicates his life to serving his king. The discipline of the athlete striving with every muscle and every fibre of his being that he might win the crown of victory. The patience of the farmer labouring every day, morning and night, for that precious harvest to come. The soldier, the athlete, the farmer, the husbandman, they've all got one thing in common. Every day they've got to prepare. They're preparing for a reward that they can't see, for a reward that's yet in the future. And whether that be the victory of the soldier in battle, the crown awarded to the athlete, or the harvest of the husbandman, they're all activities that require self-discipline. They've all got a, a long-term goal which influences the way that they live their lives. They all require patience and endurance. Activities that provide us with a template for living our lives, the daily preparation that we must make for the kingdom, disciplining our lives to enable us to overcome the flesh so that we might obtain the victory, that we might receive the crown of life, so that in the time of harvest, we might be partakers of the fruits of the kingdom. So let's consider these three occupations. Firstly, the example of the soldier. You know, there's much we could say, but the soldier is dedicated to his cause. He's prepared for conflict at any time, whether it be day or night. A good soldier will not retreat. He doesn't turn his, his, his back in the face of the enemy. A good soldier is not distracted from his target. He's loyal. A good soldier's steadfast. He follows orders. He's determined to win, even at the cost of his own life. A good soldier is willing to suffer trouble, to endure affliction for his country. And so also must the good soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got to develop these same qualities. We've got to endure hardness. We've got to be prepared to suffer for our king. And so we read in 2nd of Timothy chapter 2 and verse 3, Thou therefore endure hardness, as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Rotherham says, take thy part in suffering hardship as a brave soldier of Christ Jesus. This is an essential part of our service to prepare us for the kingdom. And that word harvest, uh, hardness is only used on four occasions. It's been translated as suffer trouble, endure afflictions, and be afflicted on two occasions. In our service as the good soldier, we must pre be prepared 
to endure hardness, suffer trouble, endure afflictions, that we might fight the good fight of faith. And this theme of the soldier engaged in a daily conflict, a warfare in the service of God, traces its origin right back again to the book of Genesis. There is in Genesis established a warfare, a warfare that's continued and will continue through all generations, a conflict between two classes of people with two different ways of thinking and two opposing moral values. The warfare, the enmity between the thinking of the fleshly mind and the mind of the spirit, a division that begins at the time of transgression and will not cease until God is all in all. And we've been there before, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. And that word enmity is the word hostility. From the very beginning, hostility was decreed between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And this hostility we find throughout scripture. It speaks to us of the spiritual warfare that we all have to fight in the truth. It's a battle that we can only win through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the nation of Israel were taught that they could only be saved from their enemies if Almighty God was with them in the battle. And so it was that when Israel went out to fight with their enemies, it was the role of the priesthood, the sons of Aaron, that they should blow with the silver trumpets. Numbers 10 and verse 9. And if you go to war in your land against the enemy that oppresseth you, then you shall blow an alarm with the trumpets, and ye shall be remembered before Yahweh your God, and ye shall be saved from your enemies. And this blowing of the trumpets was to call God's attention, that ye shall be remembered before God and saved from your enemies. And the lesson taught by the silver trumpets was that we can only overcome in the warfare. We can over, only overcome in the battle if God is with us. Deuteronomy 20 and verse 4. For Yahweh your God is he that goeth with you to fight with you against your enemies to save you. In the warfare of faith, it is God our Saviour who has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And thus it is in the warfare of faith, we've got to get that mentality of the soldier. We've got to endure the hardness of the way, the challenges that we face. We've got to follow the leadership of the captain of our salvation. And the soldier's got to obey orders without question and doesn't come uh, become involved or distracted with the affairs of this life. In the second of Timothy chapter two and verse four, we read, no man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who've chosen him to be a soldier. And that word warreth means to serve in a military campaign, to be out there on active service. And while we're on active duty, we can't be entangled with the affairs of this life. You know, a Roman soldier was forbidden to marry. He's not allowed to carry out any trade. All their life had to be committed to serving their commanding officer. And we're warned on many occasions in scripture 
that entanglement with the world, with the affairs of this life, will choke the word of God. And that, of course, was the lesson that was taught by Jesus in the parable of the sower. In Matthew 13, verse 22, the seed sown among thorns was choked by the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches, and it brought forth no fruit. But I want you to notice this also, that if we live a life that is separate from the entanglements of the world, that's something that's pleasing to God. By living a life of separation, we please God. Second of Timothy 2 verse 4, that we might please him who hath chosen us to be a soldier. Friendship with the world is enmity against God. We remain separate to please him. And so in our lives, we're engaged in this continual conflict. We've got to heed Paul's exhortation to Timothy that we might fight the good fight of faith. First of Timothy 6 verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. They hold on eternal life whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Timothy, we saw, was given a charge, wasn't he, in that first epistle to war a good warfare. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that by them thou mightest war a good warfare. You know, this isn't a conventional battle that's being fought with weapons of war, as we see in Corinthians 10 and verses 3 to 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal, they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And this is a battle that we fight with special protection with weapons that have been provided by God. If we could go to Ephesians chapter 6 and the 13th verse, Ephesians 6 and verse 13. Wonderful words of exhortation once again. Wherefore take unto you the whole armour of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. How can we fail in our warfare? if we diligently put on the armour, the whole armour of God. And here we have it in Ephesians 6, verse 14. Stand therefore, loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all taking the shield of faith, Wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. These are the items for our protection. Loins girt with truth, the breastplate of righteousness, our feet shod and the helmet of salvation. They're all items that we wear. They're things we put on our body. But the shield and the sword are both held in the hand. The shield to protect all the parts of our body. It's the shield of faith. And faith is the strongest defense that we have. With it, we can quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, is a weapon that can be used both for attack and also for defense. 
Hebrews 4 verse 12, the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The sharp two-edged sword of the word of God, it can change our lives, brethren and sisters. It pierces, it divides soul and spirit, the joints and the marrow. It discerns the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. And you know, that sharp sword is mentioned four times in the book of Revelation. And it's not a sword that's held in the hand. It's always spoken of in Revelation as a sword that comes out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. The power of the, of the sword of the word of God affects our hearts but it can be used both to defend, but also for attack. If we ignore its power and instruction, then we should die. But if we respond to the spirit's sword, then we shall live. And then we come to the seventh and to the final item of the armor of God, and that's prayer. Praying always with all prayer and supplications in the spirit, watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And prayer enables us to call on outside help from God. When we're in trouble, we can approach him in prayer. We can pray to strengthen ourselves in the battle, but we can also pray for our brethren and sisters. We can pray for others in their warfare of faith. You know, belonging to the army of Christ it's not like being the member of a social club. Christ regards us to be on duty, to be girt with truth, to have on the breastplate of righteousness, to have our feet shod with the gospel of peace, with a helmet of salvation on our heads, in one hand protecting our body, the shield of faith, in our other hand, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God making our requests known unto God in prayer. And there we are, fully clothed, ready for battle at any time of day or night, that in the warfare of faith we might indeed serve our Lord. We've got a very special calling, haven't we? We called and we belong to a special people. We're God's purchased possession, and we've been purchased through the shed blood of his dear son. And again, we might think of those in Laodicea that we've got, need of nothing. No need for us to endure hardness. No need for us to be separate. Well, let's remember the good soldier of Jesus Christ. He puts on his armour, he takes up his shield, he takes hold of his sword, and prayerfully he fights the good fight of faith. Well, now Timothy turns our attention to consider the athlete. Second uh, of Timothy, chapter two and verse five. And if a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned except he strive lawfully. And the word strive is athleo. It means to contend in competitive games. And it only occurs twice. And both times they're right here in this verse. And it's the word from which we get our word for athlete. And the word mastery is Stephanu, means to adorn with an honorary wreath. It's the same word that's translated as crowned in this very verse. 
And of course, Paul's used this picture of the athlete striving for this corruptible crown before. When he was in Corinth, where the Isthmian Games were held every two years, he drew upon the dedication of the athlete for exhortation. In the first of Corinthians chapter nine and at verse 24, he says, know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize, so run that ye may obtain. And the word race, again, it's the Greek word stadion. It means a measure of distance. Uh, and that's the word from which our word stadium is derived. Verse 25, every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body, I bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I preach to others, I myself should be a castaway. And so we live in a world that's obsessed with sport and with fitness. What a powerful exhortation, brethren and sisters, that we should apply the single-minded training schedules of the athlete to our lives in the truth. Because is it not true that we're running in the most important race of all time? Each one of us are running in the race of life. We've got to emulate the dedication of the athlete. We've got to train our minds constantly, just as the athlete trains his body. Athletes sacrifice their time, their social life to train for the race. And they're doing all that just to obtain a corruptible crown. They're given crowns of celery or laurels or pine, the leaves that would soon fade. They expend great effort for this crown that corrupts. But we're striving for an uncorruptible prize. We're running for the everlasting crown of glory that fadeth not away. So what an exhortation. Let us not run uncertainly. Let us fight, not as one that beateth the air, but let us keep under our body and bring it into subjection to the law of Christ. You know, uh, at the very beginning of each Olympic Games, every athlete promised to play fairly and to obey all the Olympic rules. And even today, one athlete from the host country takes this oath at the opening ceremony on behalf of all the athletes. And the chosen athlete holds a corner of the Olympic flag while repeating the oath. And here's the Olympic oath. In the name of all competitors, I promise that we shall take part in these Olympic Games, respecting and abiding by the rules that govern them in the true spirit of sportsmanship, for the glory of sport and for the honour of our teams. Sounds a bit hollow these days, doesn't it? But you know, in ancient times, every individual athlete had to take that Olympic oath. And I believe the Apostle Paul is making an allusion to this when he writes to Timothy. In that second of Timothy chapter two and verse five, we read, and if a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned except he strive lawfully. And Paul, I believe, is alluding to the athlete's oath. 
And in the last chapter that Paul ever writes, he returns again to this theme of the athlete. In the uh, second of Timothy chapter four, and at verse seven, he says, I've fought a good fight. Well, there's the soldier. I've finished my course. Well, there's the athlete. The word course there is dromos. It means the race. I've kept the faith. Paul had striven lawfully. And so it is with confidence, he can say, henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. That's the fruit of the husbandman, isn't it? The crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. You know, brethren and sisters, we live in a world that's obsessed with attaining corruptible crowns. But let us, brethren and sisters, heed the exhortation of Paul to follow the example of the athlete preparing, giving our time, straining, straining every sinew that in this race of life we might attain to the fruit, the crown of righteousness that fadeth not away the uncorruptible crown for which we strive. And we read in Hebrews and chapter 12 and verse 1, again his exhortation. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Well, now Paul introduces us to the example of the husbandman, the farmer, that works the land. In the second of Timothy chapter two and at verse six, we read the husbandman that laboreth must be first partaker of the fruits. And this is not teaching that the husbandman is going to be the first one to eat of the harvest, but it's teaching that first he's got to labor before he can eat of his fruits. And a better interpretation is probably in your margin, labouring first. In other words, the sowing of the seed, the labouring to keep it free of pest and disease, that must come first before he can eat of the fruit of the harvest. And the book of Proverbs illustrates this principle for us, that labour must proceed harvest. Proverbs 20 and verse 4, the sluggard will not plough by reason of the cold, therefore shall he beg in harvest and have nothing. Unless we labour, there's no reward. The field of the slothful will not yield fruit. And as we do our readings in the coming week, you're going to read of this theme time and time again. Proverbs 24 verses 30 and 31, I went by the field of the slothful, by the vineyard of the man void of understanding, and lo, it was grown over with thorns. Nettles had covered the face thereof. The stone wall was broken down. And again, we're exhorted in verse 32 of chapter 24. I saw, considered it well, looked upon it, and received instruction. And that's what we must do. We must receive instruction. If we're slothful, in our labour in the truth, then we will not produce fruit. 
and in the time of harvest, we shall have nothing. So we need to be like the farmer, the husbandman. We need to carefully cultivate the seed of the word of God, the seed sown upon the good ground that it might bring forth fruit plentifully. And James uses the same thought and the same expression in James 5 and at verse 7. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he received the early and latter rain. Well, now Paul invites Timothy to consider 2 Timothy 2 verse 7. Consider what I say. And the Lord give thee understanding in all things. And that word consider means to exercise the mind. We've got to exercise our minds upon the words of Paul. We live in this Laodicean age. We may think we have need of nothing. But the counsel of Paul is that we need to consider what he says, that we need to be diligent in the service of our Lord. So again, a well-known verse, second of Timothy, chapter two, verse 15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And, you know, we use that verse very often, don't we, to advocate daily Bible study. And, and that, of course, is important. But in fact, that word study has got a much wider application. The word study is the word use speed. It's the same word that we saw in the beginning of our talk in 2nd of Timothy chapter 4, verse 9 and verse 21. Young's literal translation says, be diligent to present thyself approved to God, a workman irreproachable, rightly dividing the word of truth. <clears throat> And so this word study is speaking of the diligence that we've got to apply to the understanding of the word of God. This is Paul's exhortation to Timothy, isn't it? But also to us, the dedication of the soldier, the discipline of the athlete, the patience of the farmer, that we might win the warfare of faith, that we might attain to the crown of victory, that we might be partakers of the fruits of the harvest. And so Paul says in Corinthians chapter 9 and at verse 26, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and I bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I preach to others, I myself should be a castaway. And so now we come to Paul's last words to Timothy. How encouraging it was for Timothy and also for us to consider the confidence of the Apostle Paul that he'd fought a good fight, that he'd finished the faith. And there was Paul very deep in the earth or underground in this small, damp, cold prison cell. But in his spiritual vision, he saw himself free in the heavens of the age to come and wearing a crown of righteousness. He was alone and no man stood with him. Nero had falsely blamed the Christians for the fire of Rome and Paul was their ringleader. 
And Nero's persecution meant that now none of the brethren could come and visit Paul for fear of persecution. And so we read in the second of Timothy chapter four and verse 16. At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. Those words first answer really mean first plea. His first plea speaks to us of the first stage of the Roman trial, the first action or pleading, when all the preliminary evidence was heard, and if the judge was satisfied, the trial would then move on to the second hearing. And the second hearing would bring Paul face to face with his accusers, and no man had stood with him. Paul was alone. But he was, of course, walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Jesus had no man standing with him as he faced his accusers. As we read in Matthew chapter 26, then all the disciples forsook him and fled. No man stood with him and no man stood with Paul. But he had the assurance that no matter what befell him, that God would be with him. As we read in Hebrews, for he hath said, I will never leave thee or forsake thee. And then Paul brings to remembrance the part that he played in the death of Stephen. And he makes three allusions to his death. First of all, he says in the second of Timothy four in verse 16. I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. Paul had been standing by as he witnessed the stoning of Stephen. The witnesses had laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. But Paul had heard Stephen's last words. Acts 7 and verse 60. Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. I wonder how Paul would feel after he'd been converted and he reflected and he realised the part that he'd played in the death of Stephen. Stephen's last words were words of forgiveness. Lay not this sin to their charge. Surely that must have been words of great comfort for Paul. Words that he must have remembered all his life. And now his own final words are an echo of those of Stephen. But of course, I'm sure you will recall that these are words echoing the spirit of forgiveness are also the final words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke 23 and verse 34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The last words of Jesus, the last words of Stephen, and Paul's final words, the spirit of forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ, the same spirit of forgiveness of Stephen and of Paul. And this spirit of forgiveness is one of the principles that we find in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us as we forgive others. And Paul was seeking solace and he was seeking forgiveness for the part he played in the death of Stephen. Matthew 6 and verse 14 tells us, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And so we find Paul's 
final words in verse 18, some of his final words, that his thoughts are dwelling upon the teaching of Jesus found in the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I'm sure you can see the echoes, brethren and sisters. The Lord shall deliver me from every evil work. Isn't that the Lord's prayer in verse 13? But deliver us from evil. He will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom. Isn't that Matthew 6 verse 10, thy kingdom come? To whom be glory, verse 13 again, for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever, amen. Verse 13 of Matthew 6, forever, amen. The second or, or allusion is to that of Jesus standing. We read uh, in chapter uh, 4 and verse 17 that no man had stood with Paul at his first answer. We've considered that. But now we read that Jesus stood with him. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me that by me the preaching might be fully known and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. The Lord stood with me. And Jesus was standing when Stephen died. In Acts chapter 7 and verse 56, we read, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. And Jesus is normally described as sitting, isn't he? Sitting on the right hand of God. Psalm 110 and verse 1, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Jesus stood, as Stephen was stoned. He stood with Paul and he strengthened him. And we know that standing denotes action. And soon the Lord Jesus Christ is going to stand up again, brethren and sisters. He's going to stand up for us, for you and for me. At that time shall Michael stand up for you and for me, for all those that are written in the book of life. And so we come to Paul's third allusion to the words of Stephen. Chapter four and at verse uh, chapter four and at verse 22, the Lord Jesus be with thy spirit. And those are words that bear a striking connection with the last words of Stephen once again. In verse 59 of Acts 7, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Stephen's last words as Paul stood by witnessing his death. And Stephen was using the last words of Jesus as he died in Luke 23 and verse 46. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And that, as you will see, is a quotation taken from Psalm 31 and verse 5. Paul's prayer was that Jesus, his spirit, might be with Timothy, that he might have the spirit of Christ that they may be united in the same spirit. And then, like Stephen, he would be able to say at the end of his life, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And this is the point, brethren and sisters. The Lord Jesus will only receive those who have his spirit. As we read in open uh, Romans chapter 8 and verse 9, Now if any man have not the spirit of Christ, 
He's none of his. And so I'd like to conclude our study, brethren and sisters, with what for me is a very sad reflection on the nature that we bear. There's one final message to this ecclesia at Ephesus. And you know where it is. It's there in Revelation chapter two and verse one. And to the angel of the ecclesia in Ephesus write, and we don't know whether Timothy was still alive. Some 30 years had gone by. We don't know if Timothy was the angel of the ecclesia of Ephesus, but we do know this in verse four. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. And that's where we must leave the story of Paul and Timothy, the great apostle and his own son in the faith, the most powerful teacher and expositor of the word of God, and Timothy, a man like-minded. And how sad that despite their diligent labours, those in Ephesus had lost their first love. A very sad reflection on the weakness of our nature. The word of God is powerful, but it's of no avail if we neglect it. We've got to play our part. We've got to feed upon it daily. And that's the thought that I would like to leave you with. What are we doing in the house of God? Are we passing on the charge? Is godliness evident in our lives? Are we living a life developing the character of our God? Paul's last witness is a final exhortation that we've got to apply to ourselves. It's only if we love is appearing, we will be able to confidently proclaim those words of the Apostle Paul when he said, henceforth, there is laid up for us a crown of righteousness. Let us strive, brethren and sisters, for the uncorruptible crown of life. I'd like by way of introduction to my remarks to contemplate the difference, the different contents of these two epistles. In the first of Timothy, Timothy is given this charge. It's an epistle of instruction to build up the ecclesia, to establish sound doctrine and encourage them in the development of godliness as the primary character of their lives in the truth. But when we come to consider the second epistle in our second address, we have Paul's very last words to Timothy. It's a personal exhortation for him to be strong, to, be, to hold fast the form of sound words. And he gives Timothy an urgent warning that in the last days, perilous times shall come. And it's upon these two different themes that we want to reflect this afternoon. And so in our first address, we're going to consider Timothy's work to establish the house of God in Ephesus 
and we're going to focus upon sound doctrine and sound practice. In the first of Timothy chapter 4 and at verses 12 to 13, we have this summarized when he says, Be thou an example to the believers in behavior, in word, in conversation, in faith, in purity. Give attendance to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. Give attendance to doctrine. Be an example to our brethren and sisters in our ecclesial behavior. And then in our second address, we find Paul's personal exhortation to Timothy. And I think it's one of the most powerful exhortations that we're going to find in scripture. His final words, that we all might receive that crown of righteousness that fadeth not away. And there's no need for me, brethren and sisters, to remind you that although this is written to Timothy, these are scriptures that are here for our learning and for our, our admonition. As we read in the second of Timothy chapter three, well-known words. Second of Timothy three, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. And so Paul's words addressed to Timothy are words which can be of great exhortation and profit to ourselves. Instructions, exhortations that we can apply to our own ecclesial lives, a template, if you like, that will guide us in our walk in the truth. So what I want to do, first of all, is to consider Timothy's qualifications for this charge that he was given. He was to be the shepherd of the ecclesia. And what better man could Paul have left behind in Ephesus? He'd been brought up in the nurture and the admonition of the truth. We read in the second of Timothy, chapter three and verse 15, from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures. Paul and Timothy, like father and like son. And then we read that Jesus was God's beloved son. And now we find Timothy is called Paul's beloved son. That shows the closeness of the relationship that these two had. We read in the first of Corinthians 4 and verse 17. For this cause have I sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ. Paul's ways were in Christ. And now Timothy, his son was to reflect those ways and to bring them into remembrance to those in Ephesus. And their unity of mind is seen in Philippians and chapter two. And at verse 20, for I have no man like minded who will naturally care for your state. They were of one mind. And that should be the stamp of our fellowship together, brethren and sisters, in our ecclesias. We should be of one mind. Remember the words of the psalmist in Psalm 133? How good and how pleasant for brethren to dwell together in unity. Timothy, we believe, must have been converted on Paul's first missionary journey. 
But later, when they first meet together in Acts 16 and verse 1, we find that Timothy had matured into a disciple of some repute. Acts 16 verse 1. Then came he to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple that was there named Timotheus. A certain disciple named Timotheus. And in Acts 16 and verse 2, we read these words. He was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. His spiritual qualities were evident. He was well reported of. And those same words are used to describe the qualities that are required in overseers, those that he was to appoint in Ephesus. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 7, we're told they must have a good report of them that are without. Timothy was a disciple of good report. He was already suitably qualified to shepherd the ecclesia of God. And they were brought together by the Spirit. And Paul took him to assist in the work. And so we read in the first of Timothy, the chapter one again, and verse 18. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare. And we're going to look at that warfare in our second address. You notice that the Weymouth translation says in accordance with the inspired instructions concerning you, which were given me long ago. And that gives a strong suggestion that Paul was given inspired instructions in Timothy's appointment. And so we find that Timothy had received a spirit gift by the laying on of the apostles' hands. But in addition, he'd been approved and sent forth on his ministry by the laying on of the hands of the elders. And there we read in the first of Timothy, chapter four and verse 14. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. And that word presbytery means the order of the elders, what we would call the arranging brethren today. And the practice of the early ecclesias was that before ecclesial work began, approval was given by the elders. And we've got an example of that in uh, Acts chapter 13 and verses 2 and 3. And there we read, the Holy Spirit said, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. And so we see that Timothy was ideally suited to this task in Ephesus. From a child, he'd known the Holy Scriptures. Paul had no man like-minded. He is described as his beloved son. He was appointed by divine instruction. He was a man of good report. He was approved and he was sent forth with the blessing of the elders. All those qualities that he would need to organise the ecclesia in Ephesus. We're not actually given the date of this epistle. We do know that it was written from Laodicea and uh, we know that Timothy was left behind as Paul went into Macedonia. 
I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia. And it's difficult to be absolutely certain when this epistle was written. But what we know for sure, what is certain, is that it's an, an epistle whose contents are instructions for ecclesial conduct throughout all time, even in our own days, brethren and sisters. That the circumstances described in Ephesus are a pattern for ecclesial behaviour in all ages. Important lessons for us to today. Practical instructions. Doctrinal correction to establish godliness as the very centre of our ecclesial life. And so we find there were Jewish teachers in Ephesus, doctors of the law, and they were introducing false doctrines contrary to the truth. And there was a need to establish their relationship with the world outside. There was a need for sound leadership to appoint suitably qualified overseers and ministers. And Timothy's charge was to build the meeting on a very sound foundation, to organise and to strengthen, to instruct and to guide the ecclesia. Advice was needed on matters of ecclesial conduct, on prayer, on the position and the deportment of sisters, the treatment of widows, all those important matters of conduct that need to be the very centre, the very pattern of our ecclesial life. And it should be noted that Paul fully expected to return. In the first of Timothy 3 in verse 14, we read, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. And that word hoping on three occasions in this epistle is translated as trust. Paul trusted he would return. But in his absence, Paul is leaving Timothy in Ephesus with a charge. In 1st of Timothy, chapter 1 and verse 3, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. And the charge was Timothy's instructions. And the word charge is paragello. And it means transmit a message from one to another. But I'm told it's especially used of the orders given by a superior officer to those who are under his command. And you'll find it that it's a key word that's used seven times in this first epistle. It's not used in the second epistle. The word charge is in the second epistle, but it's a different word that actually means to testify. And so this is Timothy's work in Ephesus, summarised in the charge, the instructions that he was given. In chapter 1 and verse 3, he was to charge some that they teach no other doctrine. The purpose of the commandment or the charge was love out of a pure heart, a good conscience and faith unfeigned. The charge was committed to Timothy that he wore a good warfare. In chapter 4 and verse 11, he was to command, he was to charge and to teach. In 5 and verse 7, he was to instruct others also. He was to give in charge that they may be blameless. In chapter 6 and verse 13, he was given the charge in the sight of God that thou 
keep the commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the final one is in chapter 6 and verse 17. Finally, he was to charge the rich to be not high-minded, but to put their trust in God. And so that was Paul's orders to Timothy. That was his charge, to establish sound doctrine. And the word doctrine is also another word that actually occurs eight times in this epistle. Uh, and you will have noticed in that first chapter that we read together, Paul gives a list of 15 characteristics of the flesh in the first of Timothy chapter one and verses nine and ten. But then we find at the end of verse 10, he says, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine and sound doctrine has to be the basis of our life in the truth. But of course, it's got to go hand in hand with sound practice. Our ecclesial behavior has got to be based upon the word of God. And so here's Timothy left to instruct the Ephesians that they may hold fast to the truth, that they may pass it on to the next generation. And keeping the charge is a theme that we find running right through scripture. And it begins, of course, with Abraham. In Genesis chapter 26 and at verse 5, we read, Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes and my laws. And the word charge in the Hebrew means to watch or to keep, to watch over, to keep the custody of the things of God. And we can follow this passing of the charge right the way through our Bible. Moses was given the charge to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. And Moses passed on the charge to Joshua. The Levites were to keep the charge of the tabernacle. We've been reading of that in our readings, haven't we? David passed on the charge to Solomon. And now Paul is passing on the same charge to Timothy. Keep my charge my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Timothy was the watchman, the custodian of the truth in Ephesus. And we, brethren and sisters, are the custodians of the truth in our generation. The charge has been passed down to us. We're watchmen and watchwomen, watching over and protecting the truth. We're following Timothy's example. We're encouraging one another. We're building up the house of God. What a challenge we've got, brethren and sisters. What a precious heritage that we should dwell together in the house of God, keeping the charge, God's instructions, that we might grow and prosper as we mature in the things of God. Now, we know that in the past, this house of God was physical. It's an expression that's applied to the tabernacle and then also to the temple. But the house of God today is spiritual. It's a house that's not built with hands. It's a house of people. We are the house of God and God dwells in us, brethren and sisters. In the second of Corinthians, chapter six and verse 16, we read, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
What a powerful thought, brethren and sisters. God dwells in us. We are his people and we dwell in the house of God. And Jesus teaches us a very important lesson in the parable of the house or the man, the house that was swept and the house that was garnished. It's in Luke chapter 11, and the warning of the parable is very simple. The evil spirit was cast out, but the house was left empty. It was swept, it was garnished, it was clean, but it was an open invitation for the evil spirit to return. And he brought with him seven of his friends. And the end result, the last state of that man is worse than the first. A very clear lesson for us. It's not enough for us just to sweep and to garnish. We've got to be active. We've got to fill the house with good things. And that's the principle we find in this epistle. Timothy has first to cleanse the house by addressing the problems that he found in Ephesus. And it's only then that the house could be filled with the good things of the truth. And so we find in Ephesus that there was a vocal self-important faction that wanted to hold on to Jewish tradition. And they probably included those priests that had believed but were now seeking to be teachers. They were turning back to the things of the Mosaic law. And Timothy was to challenge these teachers of other doctrines. We read that in First of Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. And the nature of this false doctrine we find indicated in verse 4. Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith. Neither give heed to fables. The Greek word is muthos. This is the word Paul uses when he exhorts Timothy in uh, Titus, in Titus chapter 1 and verse 14, he says not to heed Jewish fables. And Peter also writing to Jewish believers has got exactly the same warning in the second of Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. He says we've not followed cunningly devised fables. And these Jewish fables are very likely a reference to the Mishnah, the oral traditions concerning the interpretation of the law of Moses, which was filled up with these Jewish fables, things that have been added to the law. And then there was this question of endless genealogies. We know, don't we, that the Jews love these endless genealogies. But, you know, a, a genealogy can only ever prove one thing. It can only ever establish fleshly descent. They were seeking to return to a system that's called in Scripture administration of death. And Paul describes this same group of people when, again, he writes to Titus. Titus chapter 3 and verse 9. And there he says... But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and striving about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. Timothy was charged with turning them from things that minister questions to godly edifying. 
So we read in 1st of Timothy chapter 1 and at verse 4 and 5. But in godly edifying, which is in faith and love out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. You know, godly edifying is an attitude of mind that excludes all our fleshly motives and desires. It's an attitude of mind that elevates the character of God. And the purpose of godly edifying we find there in verse 5. The end of the commandment is love out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. The threefold purpose of the charge. Love out of a pure heart, a good conscience and faith unfeigned. And these three, I would suggest, are the very bedrock of ecclesial life. But there were some brethren that had swerved. They'd turned aside to vain jangling. In the first of Timothy chapter one and at verse six, we read from which some having swerved have turned aside unto vain jangling. And you notice that that verse has got a double emphasis. They'd swerved. And it means to miss the mark. And they'd also turned aside or turned away to vain jangling, to empty talk. Rotherham calls it idle talk. These vain, jang jangle, these vain talkers were also present in Crete. In Titus chapter 1, uh, in verse 10, we read, For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision. The vain talkers were of the circumcision. They opposed Paul's teaching. They sought to retain elements of the Mosaic law. And these were a really dangerous element in the meeting because they desired to be teachers. They wanted positions of uh, importance. We're a little bit ahead of ourselves on the overheads, but there's the first of Timothy chapter one and verse seven. Desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. And those words teachers of the law are actually one word in the Greek. And it's a word that's only used on three occasions. On the other two occasions, it's been translated as doctors of the law. The vain talkers were the doctors of the Jewish law. The first requirement of a teacher is that they should be the masters of their subject. But these converts from Judaism didn't understand. They turned aside. They'd missed the mark. They were like the sow that was washed and they'd returned to their wallowing in the mire. And the word desiring there is quite a strong word in the Greek. It means determined. They were determined to be teachers. But the reality was they were just empty talkers. They didn't understand a word they were speaking, nor whereof they affirm. Rotherham says, confidently affirm. Such was the arrogance of these who desired to be teachers. How dangerous are the vain talkers, those determined to be teachers, those who confidently affirm things that they don't really understand. They sought to be leaders of the flock, 
but they lacked the necessary spiritual qualifications. And that's why we find in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the whole chapter very nearly is devoted to instructions to Timothy on the qualities required in those that were appointed to be overseers and ministers in the ecclesia of God. And so we can see the wisdom of that custom that we saw in the early ecclesias in laying on the hands of the elders before ecclesial responsibility is given. It's not a practice that we follow today. Nevertheless, it highlights for us the importance that we discern those who speak the words of sound doctrine, those who are able to teach and to instruct others, that the charge of the truth may be preserved and that it may prosper. It was these teachers of the law and of other doctrines that were sowing the seeds of error that would germinate and grow until some would depart from the faith. So we find in the first of Timothy chapter four and at verse one to five, these details. Now the spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter time, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. And so that was Timothy's task, wasn't it? He was to lay this foundation that could withstand the seducing spirits and the doctrines of devils. You know, that word seducing means to stray from the straight path. It means to wander from side to side. And those are words that surely remind us of the winds of doctrine that can buffet us from side to side. In Ephesians chapter 4 and at verse 14, that we be no more children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the sight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. These seducing spirits, these winds of doctrine, we have to test them by scripture. We've got to try the spirits as we read in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. And Paul concludes his warnings concerning the false teachers with those that teach otherwise. In the first of Timothy, Chapter 6 and verse 3, we read these words. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which is according to godliness. And the words or the word teach otherwise means to instruct differently. And it's one word in the Greek and it's exactly the same word that's translated in 1st of Timothy chapter 1 in verse 3 as teach no other doctrine. And that's the only two occasions that this word appears. And so they're, they're like bookends, aren't they really? Paul opens his warning against these false teachers and he closes it with the same word. And we can so easily recognize brethren and sisters the character of those who teach otherwise. In the first of Timothy chapter six 
And at verses four and five, he's proud, knowing nothing, doting about questions and strife of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men, of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. All those characteristics that have no place in the house of God. And the words there, strife of words, in the Greek is logo makaya. It means a word fight. And again, it's one word in the Greek. And we find there's a very closely related word that is used in the second of Timothy, chapter 2 and verse 14. Of these things, put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit. Strive not about words. That's logo makio, to war with words. There's no good end result when we battle with words, is that? We read in the first of Timothy chapter six and verse four, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings or blasphemy, evil surmisings, evil suspicions. And Brother Roberts in Seasons of Comfort highlights the difference between contending for the faith and the perverse disputings of men. And this is what he says. Those who are indifferent can easily afford to ignore disagreement and to preach cordially of the virtue of agreeing to differ. And then he says, this is no characteristic of the ecclesia of the living God. It contends for the faith once delivered to the saints and obeys Paul's command to turn away from the perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds. And there is a very fine balance between contending for the faith, matters of doctrine, and warring with words to no profit. And we must make a very careful distinction between the two. And the Apostle Paul reminds us of the foundations of our faith in Galatians and chapter 1 and verses 8 and 9. Again, they're, they're well-known words. He says, but though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. And the word curse there is anathema. It means an irrevocable vow of destruction. Perhaps it's no coincidence that it only occurs six times in scripture. If we depart from the faith, if we heed false teachers, Paul says, let him be accursed. When Jesus returns, brethren and sisters, will we be faithfully upholding the gospel, preach to the apostles, or will we have followed these false teachers? where we have turned aside unto another gospel. And that's what the doctors of the law were preaching, another gospel. They were seeking to draw away disciples and return to law keeping. 
Jewish converts were turning back and they were seeking righteousness, not through the faith of Christ, but by the works of the law, not by faith. In Romans chapter 9 and at verse 32, the Apostle Paul puts these things before us when he says, Romans 9, verse 32. Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. And this is why Paul emphasizes the important doctrinal principles of salvation, that it's not by works of law, but it's by faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul uses two key ideas to show that God has provided salvation through belief in Jesus Christ. It's not through the works of the law. Three important ideas are presented to us in this epistle. The first is that God has provided. The second is salvation. And the third is belief or faith in Jesus Christ. And that, of course, is the doctrinal basis of our ecclesial life. And firstly, he uses the key words, God, our saviour. And variations on that theme, God, who is the saviour of all men and our saviour, Jesus Christ. And those are used 10 times in the pastoral epistles. And so we find them three times in this first epistle. You'll find them six times as he writes to Titus. We find them once in the second epistle. And it's only used by two other people in the New Testament. Jude uses those words in verse 25 to the only wise God, our saviour. And the only other occasion is when Mary, in her song of joy, knew that the seed in her womb was to be God's salvation. And so she says in Luke chapter 1 and verse 47, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my saviour. And this is the principle of God our saviour, highlighted by Mary when she was instructed that his name was to be called Jesus. Matthew 1 verse 21, and she shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And Paul, I believe, is taking us right back to that first promise in Genesis chapter 3. The seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent and would bring salvation. The first promise, God would bring salvation. And the name Jesus, of course, correctly understood, means God's salvation. The Hebrew is Yahshua or Joshua, he who will be salvation. And that's such an important principle that it was necessary for Oshir, the son of Nun, to have his name changed. We won't go back to it, but Numbers 13 and verse 16. And Moses called Oshir, the son of Nun, Jehoshua. Oshir simply means salvation. But of course, as a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, his name was changed to Joshua or Yeshua, 
not just salvation, but God's salvation, Yahweh's salvation. A first principle emphasized by Paul in these pastoral epistles. Israel sought righteousness through the works of the law, but God has provided a savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that really is Paul's second key theme. And it continues to build upon the first. The Apostle Paul speaks of five faithful sayings. And it's been suggested that the faithful sayings are based upon an early form of statement of faith. And the very fact that they're called faithful suggests that they were already known and accepted by believers. And this is what they teach us. They teach us that God's salvation is extended only to those who believe in Christ. The words salvation and belief are the two key words that help us to identify these faithful sayings. And I think that's important because the words faithful saying or true saying sometimes comes before Sometimes it comes in the middle and sometimes they come after. And so if we look for our keywords, it can help us to identify the faithful sayings. They all, without exception, contain the words salvation and belief. Well, we've got three of these faithful sayings here in this first epistle. The first saying is in the first of Timothy chapter one and verses 15 and 16. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. And there are our two key words. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And the second, he was a pattern to them that should hereafter believe on him to everlasting life. The, those are our key words then, found associated with the faithful sayings, to save and to believe. The second saying is in the first of Timothy chapter two and verse 15. Notwithstanding, she'll be saved in the childbearing if they continue in faith and in, in love and holiness with sobriety. And then we read in chapter three and verse one, this is a true saying. The true saying that speaks of Salvation through faith are those words that come before. And I know some have suggested that the faithful saying is the words that come after. If a man seek the office of an overseer, he desireth a good work. And while that is, of course, true, it doesn't have this theme of salvation and belief. The key words are found in the words of the verse before. She shall be saved, sozo, 
if they continue in faith. And the word faith is the root of that word belief, pistis. The role of the woman in the childbearing, and it's got the definite article, brought forth Christ, the promised seed, who is the means whereby they, plural, are saved if they continue in faith. And there's our doctrinal statement, salvation through belief or faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the third saying is in chapter four and verses eight and ten. Bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. For therefore we both labour and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the saviour of all men, especially of those that believe. God who is the saviour of all men, especially of those that believe. There are our two key words associated with the faithful sayings. And so these faithful sayings teach us that Jesus came to save sinners. He was the pattern for all that believe. That it's only through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that we can be saved. We cannot be saved by the works of the law. And as we read in Acts, neither is there salvation in any other, for there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. God, our Saviour, has invited us into his family through belief in Jesus Christ, our Saviour. What a wonderful position of privilege we have, brethren and sisters. We've been invited. We're members of God's family. We've been invited into the house of God. We're dwelling in God's house. And so in the first of Timothy and chapter three and at verse 15, we come to what is the very heart, the very center of this epistle. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the ecclesia of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth, that thou mayest know. Do we know, brethren and sisters, how to behave ourselves in the house of God? What are we doing? Are we building up the house? Are we adding to it? Or are we taking away? Is the house furnished or are we leaving it empty? Paul calls it the ecclesia of the living God. And this expression, living God, is used three times in this epistle. First of Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10. For therefore we both labour and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God, who is the saviour of all men, especially of those that believe. Do we trust in the living God, brethren and sisters? First of Timothy 6 and verse 17, we read, charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Do we trust in mammon? 
or are we placing our trust in the living God? And so the first principle of the house of God is that it, it's alive, it's living. Let us ensure each one of us ensures that our ecclesia is living, alive with the good things of God. In the second of Corinthians chapter six and verse 16, we read these words. For what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. We're called living or lively stones. We've got a living hope, brethren and sisters. But of course, there's always that danger, isn't there? That we can become like those at Laodicea. We can become lukewarm, neither cold nor hot. And we all know so well Christ's warning that he was going to spew them out of his mouth because they didn't see and they didn't understand their true position. Revelation 3 verse 17. I'm rich, increased with goods, have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. What a warning for us that the material prosperity that we enjoy, that it can blind us to the danger that we're spiritually poor and blind and naked. So let us heed the counsel of Jesus. Let us buy the gold of a tried faith. Let us keep our garments unspotted from the world. Let us anoint our eyes with the spirit word that we can see. Well, that's the first principle. The second and the third principles are that the house of God is the pillar and the ground of the truth. And a pillar is a support and the ground is the foundation. The house of God is supported by its members being strong in faith, in spiritual stature, especially those who labour in the word and doctrine, men and women who are pillars, men and women such as those spoken of in Galatians chapter 2. Galatians 2 and verse 9. James, Cephas and John, who seem to be pillars. The word pillar is stulos. It means a post or support. And it comes from a root word that means to stand. The pillar is the support of the truth in the house of God. And we've been called, brethren and sisters, that we might be pillars in the house of God. Revelation 3 and verse 12. Him that overcometh, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And the pillar is the framework. It's the structure of the house. It holds up the roof and the roof protects us from the heat of the sun. It protects us from rain and from storm. But of course, a pillar will not stand if it's not built upon a firm foundation. And Paul calls it the ground of the truth. And we could have no stronger foundation than that that is laid even the Lord Jesus Christ, he who is the chief foundation stone. As we read in Ephesians, we're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief corner. Jesus Christ, the head of the corner. No other foundation 
upon which the house of the living God can stand. The house of God is our shelter from the storms of life. It's within the house of God we develop the secret of godliness. Ephesians or uh, first of Timothy chapter three and in the 16th verse. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And the secret of godliness was manifest in his son, manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. A sequence of developments or events that begin with his birth, manifest in the flesh, through to his ascension, received up into glory. We don't like six items really, do we, brethren and sisters? But there's no seventh item there. Perhaps it's an incomplete sequence. And I just wonder and think about this. Will the seventh be his return when he comes to rule the earth with the rod of iron? And so we see that godliness is the overriding theme of this epistle, that in all aspects of our life, we should seek to manifest godliness. And it's really a, an attitude of mind, isn't it? It's a deep reverence. It's a, a respect that is seen in our daily life and worship as we seek to develop the character of our God. And the word godliness really takes us right back to the purpose of God in Numbers chapter 14 and verse 21. As truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of Yahweh. God's glory will be seen in those who develop the character of God so that they are vessels that are fitted for his use in the kingdom. How important it is for each one of us to develop godliness in our lives, not to be ruled over by our fleshly desires, but in every aspect of our lives, we should seek to show forth the character of our God. And the word for godliness is this word Eusebia, and it's translated from two words, well and reverence. And there are other related words that are translated as piety, godly, worship, holiness, and devout. And of course, they're all words that relate to our frame of mind in our worship of God. We approach him with reverence. We worship him in a devout and godly frame of mind. And this word godliness occurs 21 times in the New Testament. And 10 of those are right here in the first of Timothy chapter 1. And so we can see that Timothy or Paul wanted Timothy to establish godliness as the outstanding characteristic of this ecclesia in Ephesus. Should not the outstanding characteristic of our ecclesial worship be reverence to our God? Is not the establishment of godliness the purpose of God with the earth? As truly as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of God. And so Timothy has been left with this task of establishing the Ecclesia in Ephesus as a temple of the living God, rooted and grounded in faith, furnished with the fruits of the spirit, manifested in men and women professing godliness. This was Paul's charge 
These were his instructions to develop a vibrant living ecclesia, to oppose the false teachers, to be a witness to the world, sisters to be adorned with good works as becometh women professing godliness, to establish sound ecclesial leaders, that the house of God <clears throat> may be a pillar of truth built upon a sure foundation. Well, Timothy has long fallen on sleep, brethren and sisters. But of course, the work continues. The ecclesia of God will only thrive if its members commit their lives to keeping the charge, to showing forth godliness as they develop his character in their lives. Timothy didn't finish this work by any means. He laid a foundation. He provided us with a pattern. He gave us an example to follow as we strive together to build and to furnish the house of God. We're God's building. We're his husbandry. And what a privilege it is, brethren and sisters, that we should labor together with God. And the end result, the goal for which we strive, we find in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 27. This is what it's all about, isn't it? That we might all be presented a glorious or a noble ecclesia without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that we should be holy and without blemish. An ecclesia based upon sound doctrine, an ecclesia based upon sound practice. Let us, brethren and sisters, keep the charge of the truth. <laughs>